Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello, welcome back to Fighting on Film. Now this week, um, you've caught me in the Foth vault because Matt is on holiday. So we are taking a little week break, but have no fear because I've dusted off a absolute belter from the Foth vault. We were joined uh, by David Carson on my own YouTube channel in December of 2020 and he um, was kind enough to come on the show to talk about his involvement as a military advisor on a 1985 British Army training film called The Unbroken Line. Now that film is about the British infantry from the English Civil War up until the Cold War era and Matt did a breakdown uh, episode on his channel, The Armourer's Bench, of the Piat scene in the movie, so you can go off and watch that. And if you'd like to watch the watch-along that we did, that the audio for this episode is taken from, you can do on my YouTube channel, which is RM Military History. And I think we even recorded this one when the show was two episodes old. So the format might differ a little from our usual scheduling, but I hope you'll enjoy it, and we'll catch you for some more War Movie Chat soon. Welcome back to the channel, everybody. Uh, we've got a, a meeting of mine, shall we say, today. I'm uh, joined by uh, Matthew Moss of the Armourer's Bench, uh, better known as Historical Firearms. And we're joined today also by uh, David Carson, an ex-colonel um, and uh, MBE holder. Uh, we're extremely excited to have him on the channel. Um, and he's going to be joining us, uh, talking about a film he was a historical advisor on all the way back in uh, 1987. The film's called uh, The Unbroken Line. And, uh, and David, would you 
kindly give us a little bit of a, a, a synopsis of, of the movie? Yeah, yes, yeah, certainly. So actually, it was 1985. Sorry to correct you. Before oh, we started. Um, but um, the film came about because it was the tercentenary of a number of uh, British Army regiments. And uh, the film was commissioned by the Central Office of Information on behalf of the MAD. I suppose partly recruiting, uh, but also for internal audiences to show um, serving soldiers something of their heritage and to make that link. And it was very much aimed at the soldier and the NCO. It wasn't a film about posh officers particularly. It was about the blokes doing their job and how that sort of strand of um, service, um, dedication, comradeship, uh, maybe stubbornness, um, all those sort of traits that we all know exist today and existed then. And uh, that's been a sort of golden thread, I suppose. I, I think that was really what they were trying to get across. You know, as with all things, the, the budget uh, first, I think, and foremost went on the actors and the, and the director. Um, and then, you know, we had to scrabble around to try and do 300 years of British history in literally in three days. Um, that's all we had to do it um, with um, some soldiers from the Gloucesters, who were our infantry, and from uh, 160 Provo Company, Royal Military Police from Aldershot, who were the the last remaining mounted police unit in the UK at the time, long now sadly gone. And they were our cavalry. So, um, yeah, it was it was extraordinary, really. And I, I sort of walked into it because I just left Morris Angels, the theatrical costumers. Uh, helping to run their military department and uh, I sent out a, a load of letters to production companies this is all before email and things like that um, and I was more than surprised to get a phone call from one of, from a production company in London saying we've just been asked to make this film uh, for the Central Office of Information on behalf of the MAD and that was a company called Illustra. Uh, I don't even know if they exist anymore. And um, you know, I was taken out to a, a posh lunch and asked what I could do. Well, I, I, I'm afraid I think I sort of probably made it up. But I, I just said I could do anything you want me to do. And so they obviously wanted a military advisor, but they hadn't got anyone else to do props, to be an armourer, to find locations, to to do any of those bits. So I sort of said I could do the whole lot so which was pretty silly but you know I was 27 and uh, young and enthusiastic and thought I could have a crack at it so that's sort of the background really and Salisbury Plain was our location and I happened to live within the sound of the guns from Lark Hill so um, which rattled my windows so I, I know the plane pretty well and I'd, I'd been a I'd served in the TA for five or six years by that stage. So, I, again, I knew the plane intimately and I, I, I knew how the army worked. Um, so it was, a, it was a very neat, uh, you know, fit, really, uh, mm. from all respects. So I could work with the army. I could work with the, uh, the civil servants. I could work with, you know, theatrical costumiers and armourers. And, and I called in lots of favours. So we can talk about a bit more about those as we sure. go on. But that, yeah. that's sort of it, really, yeah. I, when I found the video, um, I immediately sent Matt the link because I was like, you have to check this out. You know, I think I'm very excited. As you were saying there, David, um, I actually dug up some prints that I have, the, the Suffolks and yep. the, the Anglicans. Yep. The Anglians. Yep. And um, yep. it has three uniforms 
three depictions of uniforms from 1685, Napoleonic period, and then uh, early Cold War, and one of them is uh, actually 1985. Well, there you go. That was certainly um, the mm. thought behind it. And I think looking at it again this afternoon, I have to say it brought back lots of memories, but, you know, we'd probably do it differently today, wouldn't we? But um, as a piece of... Um, as a documentary, uh, yeah. really, showing the British Army during the, the Cold War, because that was all very real to us, you know, it really was very real, and we were we were really quite ready uh, for the Definitely. Russians to, you know, swarm yeah. across Germany um, and for special forces to be dropping in the UK. You know, that was that was what we were practising all the time, so um, it was very much of the moment. It's, it does an interesting job of sort of, like, showing that, the unbroken line, as it yeah, were, as it definitely. says, you know, and it shows definitely. that the soldiers have soldiers throughout time, especially British soldiers, have had this sort of mentality, which, yep, you know, flows through. Mm. Exactly that, years. and I think I think that was a really good concept, and I think that would hold true today. I don't think you know. I think we can make a film today showing the soldiers who served in Iraq and Afghanistan have exactly the same traits as you know the soldiers that served yeah. in the trenches during the First World War, and you know served at Blenheimore in you know, Normandy or what does not matter. I mean, they are the same types of people. So I think I think with a few concept. tweaks to perhaps soundtrack and uh, locations yeah. and. Yeah, yeah, a bigger budget, then you you would probably do exactly the same thing, and it mm. would come off just as well. Uh, I exactly. Think... I mean, a bigger budget would help enormously, and I can't even begin to tell you what we tried to do it on. Um, so there were lots of shortcuts taken, and um, you know, looking at it now, I made I mentally made those comments to myself. Oh my god, you know, why didn't we do this? Why didn't we do it? But I know why we didn't because we didn't have the cash. So, right. So I think on that note, we'll uh, we should start watching it. Disinherited vagabonds and drifters, armies were forged which conquered the world. The soldiers' values were simple loyalty, discipline, and courage. He was stubborn, misunderstood, taken for granted, and always there when needed. 300 years later, he's still the same man, the British soldier. It's the first couple of minutes. I would have watched the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can just, just a bit of background there. So that was all filmed um, in a, a valley, um, a, a shallow valley. I'm trying to think what side it was. It was to the south of um, Tidworth Military Cemetery. So, um, and that was a tenanted farm. So the barns you saw right at the end of that clip Um was part of a farmyard which we we took over basically um and the chickens were supplied by my brother um and needless to say like with all animals they didn't you know 
they disappeared um so <laughs> just left them there i think <laughs> hopefully they, they were they were looked after by the the farmer um and the two characters he saw talking to each other i can't remember the name of the younger actor but the corporal was played by an actor called bruce payne who's quite well known now uh worth googling um and looking up and uh, he went on to do quite a lot of stuff um mm. and he appears um all the way through i think maybe not in the waterloo sequence we'll have to have a look at that but he's certainly in the world war ii one as the corporal yeah actors did they have um previous military experience or no no so we had um for the um the present day at the time for the 1985 sequences um we had lots of soldiers around so they were taken off and given a bit of basic you know what do you do so in that sequence you saw them moving back out of their positions um which is the correct way of doing it, obviously keeping a low silhouette and moving back um i can't I remember when they pop up out of the uh, the grass mm. Yeah, exactly. That, really um, those were all soldiers, the rest of them. And yeah. it was, you know, a four three two belonging to the Gloucesters. So um, I think, you know, it was all very nice. We, you know, they were taken in hand and, and just briefed on what they, you know, for each scene, what they should and shouldn't do. Mm. When it came to the um, the World War Two bits and the Napoleonic bits, I, I taught, uh, we'll talk about that later, but I taught them the Napoleonic musket drill and then I I taught them uh, how to use World War Two weapons. So I love the, how he, thinks he's hearing like the echoing yes. of, of the past yeah. I, there's a narrative there but then there's this overarching narrative of them being in the same area of the the troops previous i really i really like that i love the narrative choices yeah um, well of course it was, it's meant to be in germany somewhere yeah, of course so um yeah. Yeah, that's the link and the synthy soundtrack's just very 80s i love it so good mm. So that's a nice little beginning, and it's. Um, I was very pleased with that scene in in the farmyard. We'll see a bit more of it in a minute, mm. but I mean that took, you know, we had the old tripod and the cauldron, and you know we we had a proper fire burning, and there was you know there wasn't anything in it you could eat, but it was it was <laughs> that sort of feel, you know, yeah. um, and and the barn inside was perfect because one of the one of the beams had cracked, so the the sort of roof was caving in, Fantastic. but it just looked, and it was sort of, it's probably a. Um, slightly later barn to be honest it's probably you know late 1700s early 1800s but you know when is the initial segment set it's, it's is it battle of blenheim yeah. yes it right. is yeah um and, and again i mean i had hands up you know it wasn't my period and you know i went and got all the costumes and stuff together and then i i should have done the research a bit more closely because they should be wearing tricorns uh, rather than just having one side of the hats turned up, to be honest. Yeah, um, the, the uni- the uniforms, earlier, I think. Yeah, exactly. The uniforms are sort of okay. Don't look too closely at the swords um, yeah, and the shabracks. Like 1793. Yeah, exactly. Like and the shabracks on the horses are the same ones for you. But, you know, <laughs> there was just not enough money to hire swords reach but to the uninitiated someone that isn't looking for those kind of things or you know you're just yeah. engrossed in the, the you know the, yes. the, the film itself then you're not going to notice those no, no we just really we wanted to give a, a clearly different feel to, mm. to waterloo and i think yeah. the waterloo section you know i don't want to keep jumping but that that's a bit more clearly defined yeah 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 i think that it shows a nice sort of it's a nice juxtapose where you see the the kit the army has in 85 to the kit we started with in 1700s yeah. it's a it's a real nice you know to juxtapose again it's such a nice mm. switch 
Hmm. So uh, I think we'll continue. Aye, we could wish for some activity, sir. It defies belief that we must wait here in idleness while his grace is even now committing lesser regiments to engagement. If he will but let us have at him, sir, we'll play a tune for those Frenchies to dance to. Soldiers have always worked in the most violent environment known to man. The battlefield. Aye, sir. They broke our first line of cavalry, but that sent them headlong into our foot, whom he thinks are paying them handsome attention at this moment. Soon we shall charge upon command and send them all to the devil where they belong. A soldier's loyalties are to his country, his regiment, and his comrades. He will defend them all to the death. Comradeship is the intangible link that binds the highest commander to the lowest private. At Blenheim, John, Duke of Marlborough, led a vagabond army that achieved the greatest victory that Europe had seen for 400 years. His men called him Corporal, a nickname not lightly given. A right good day, sir. And we've Corporal John to thank for that. Corporal John? Our Captain General. We call him that because he looks after his men, sir. On our march back from Flanders, he took even common soldiers into his carriage, those that succumbed to exhaustion, and procured us new boots, sir. They said it was against orders, but Corporal John did it. The system, like society, has never been perfect. Pardon, sir, but I am lately come to the regiment and scarcely know the men. Yet they seem good fellows. We enjoyed most famous sport down yonder in the village against the gendarme who scampered off with the most determined modesty. Blenheim is its name, though the men have dubbed it Blenheim. Aye, they seem good men all, yet I must perhaps leave them shortly, for I am apprised of a captaincy fallen vacant for purchase with the 21st. So there we go, Blenheim. <laughs> yes, Blenheim in 10 minutes or five mm. minutes or, yeah. So, But there's lots of little really interesting things in there. Um, you know, the, the mention of um, the captain buying his captain scene in another battalion, another regiment. Yeah. That was an interesting inclusion. Um, obviously something that was such a big part of the British Army for, ooh, I suppose, 200 years. I think that was deliberate. Again, it was pointing out that officers have come and gone and certainly up until the reforms where you actually had to earn your commission rather than pay for it, that, um, you know, some were very good and some were clearly not very good. Mm. Um, and it was the soldiers and the NCOs that formed the backbone of the the army. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the, that was the point. And the, the actor playing the officer was uh, actor called Michael Maloney, who again has become quite famous. He's done quite a lot of Shakespeare. Um, again, well worth Googling him. So he was a very young, up-and-coming actor, as was Bruce Payne, who appeared mm. in that sequence. So, um, yeah, really interesting. And the the cavalry NCO was a chap called Dallas Adams, and I, I did look him up today, and sadly he's, he's no longer with us. He's passed away, but um, he played quite a significant part in the film all the way through. 
that and charge they, is quite magnificent. They actually jumped the cameraman. Uh, oh wow! Absolutely terrified him because that wasn't in you know that wasn't meant to happen. Um, mm. But yeah, he um, they cleared the camera man and the sound man on the ground, and they came came back out looking a bit ashen after that <laughs> sequence. <laughs> well, that's got to be terrifying staring down yeah. a. A cavalry charge. Wow. Yeah. Very effective. I yeah. you know, they're all there with their um swords drawn through the yeah. smoke. It's yeah, it's rather I did notice they were they were uh, they had all the the seventeen ninety six pattern uh, like cavalry yeah. sabers pointed as they as was manu- as was laid down in the manual. So exactly. Was, exactly. Yeah, with the reverse grip. I, I got that bit right, but the swords were, wouldn't have been made at that period as we both know. <laughs> Talking of actors, uh, the film's narrated by Ian Holm, Bilbo Baggins, which I thought was really fitting sort of addition. His narration's really, really good. Do you know anything about how he was involved? No, I don't. And that was all post-production. So sure. I never, I mean, he didn't come to set. Um, and I think it was a favour, possibly mm. through the director who may have worked with him in the past. Um, because again, you know, it was a, the whole production was calling in favours from whoever... Um, so I imagine, you know, he probably waived his normal fee because even then he was fairly well known. So I think now we'll go from Waterloo right up to the First World War. The regiment is the cornerstone of the British Army. Regimental spirit is based on ideals of loyalty, comradeship and honour. Those ideals are enshrined in a regiment's colours. The backbone of the army is the non-commissioned officer. Then, as now, he led by example. That'll be the third assault we've repulsed today, sir. The boys are standing well. We let the Frenchies come to 20 paces sometimes before we return their salutes. They'll be damn fools, begging your pardon, sir. They keep coming against us in this manner. The soldier at Waterloo had been taught by his non-commissioned officer to fire his cumbersome musket at the rate of two rounds per minute. Standing shoulder to shoulder in the square, the same NCO helped his men to maintain that rate of fire in the face of cavalry charge, musket volley and artillery bombardment. If a square were ever to break, God forbid, it would become of little more consequence than some Hyde Park mob. And you may wager it would present Johnny Crapo yonder with some fine sport for his cavalry. There is more worse. For if a square were to break, the regiment that composed it might scarcely raise its head ever again. Yeah. What a great sequence. I want to be in that line with that sergeant. It's a British Army sergeant personified, isn't it? Well, it's um obviously it was meant to represent a corner of a square and we um we had very little time. I mean, I had to train those guys to fire brown besses and we to do all the correct loading drills. Um we were able to get up to the two rounds per minute for real. I mean, that's actually what we managed to achieve uh within wow. probably half a day's training but because you know you're working with soldiers they do what they're told and they understand orders and they just got on with it and they rather enjoyed you know biting the cartridges off and ramming them down and it was great uh, i got actually told off for firing a volley when they were f- filming another sequence because um 
we <laughs> we had to rehearse to make sure it would work. But literally, you know, we ran from one day to the next. You know, it was Blenheim, and then I think we had a day off, and then it was into Waterloo. Uh, and another day off and then into into the Normandy sequence. Um, so point of interest there, the uh, the actor playing the uh, uh, Dragoon officer is Christopher Good, who's best known as for his portrayal of Major Carlisle in um, A Bridge Too Far. He, he'd already done that by that stage, so I was quite surprised to see him on set, actually. Sort of hint at the 69th losing their colours at Quatre Bras. Yes. I like, I like that inclusion in the, um, the little narrative monologue. The regiment wouldn't dare show its face if they if they lost it again. Obviously, this I think the 69th recovered theirs during the Hundred Days campaign, but I, but yeah, they famously lost theirs at Quatre Bras. Yeah, and it was as you say, a huge disgrace. And I think they were just trying to, you know, the script was trying to bring that out, and the fact that you know it was an officer holding the colour but being defended by NCOs. So that was yeah. again part of the dialogue. I think as well that the. The talking to camera is definitely something you you'd never see again in a possibly from a, like a narrative point of view in one of these training videos. They're not possibly not from a historical re- reconstruction point of view. It's very it's very refreshing to have a a soldier from the past come and talk to the viewer. Yeah, yeah. I, really, I really like that narrative choice there. I think it. I think that's why for me the film is so refreshing because it's presented in a completely unique way to say I don't know pick sort of any British army training from from the 80s, they're all very matter-of-fact. Yeah, it's not like Soviet encounter where, you know, the, the the narrative is driven by NCO briefings and what's heard over the net, etc. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that, Rob, because it reminds me of Peter Watkins' sort of like... Yeah. Uh, ...to camera style, you know, with uh, films like Culloden and... and, and it is like quite rem- yeah, it's quite reminiscent of Culloden, actually. I think the director certainly was, you know, had come from a very uh, artistic theatrical background and um, wanted to give it a new take. Um, Mm. And he was, you know, a relatively young director on his way up. And I think, you know, he wanted to put his own stamp on it rather than just being yet another um, army public information type film. It has a vibe that sets it apart, I think, definitely. Mm. So now I think when we go back the year 1985 troops they they bleed into the the film again Hello, Zero, this is Mike to Zero. Contact, 11.45 hours, grid. 7147, a 14 BMP, a 12 at T62, moving west, astride Route 3, I'm observing, over. Roger, out. Colonel. Hello, to one, engage, out. Lift radio silence. Hello, Charlie, at 6, batteries, Zulu Tango, 4143, at 10 round. Tell Rachel to withdraw the two forward section now and take up their new positions on Bad Fox. Uh, you'll see Christopher Good now is playing the present day colonel um, as the commanding officer of a battalion um, in their command headquarters, which was built specifically for the for the film um, in a in a large. Uh, 12 by 12 tent, I think we were in. Um, but yeah, so he he was obviously brief before each sequence as to how to get across, you know, the fact that he was in charge. Um, mm. um, okay, he played a, a particular character a bridge too far, but, you know, this is modern army talk and he had to be convincing rather than looking as though he was just saying the lines without understanding what he was saying. Um, so he had, he had a bit of personal... 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Situation there. Um, but yeah, the kit was all current at the time. Um, so I think those are scorpions rather than scimitars. I get confused easily. <laughs> it's the size of the barrel, isn't it? It's the gun on them. Maybe they're scimitars. Um, I think I think the scorpion had the low velocity. That's right. Barreled gun. It did. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So they are two scimitars, which are still in service. <laughs> they they were all up for it. They were all having a great time, and it was a sort of week off work for them, but doing what they do. He's very convincing, uh, Christopher, in those scenes. I, you know, if, if you'd never have told me that it, it it was Christopher Good, I wouldn't have known. Um, I would have thought it was a serving serving officer. Um, yeah, personally. I don't know what you think, Matt, but um, yeah, no, he is convincing, you know. Yeah. Um, lift radio silence, what we had on the net, you know, he's got all the lingo mm. down. Definitely. He's got all the lingo. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And I think, you know, the, the difference between um, saying the words and actually sounding as though you understand mm. the words the, uh, yeah. is the distinction. And I think he got that very well mm. and uh, certainly got the briefing from the the um you know the regular officers and the all on set basically um throughout so he, he felt happy with what he was doing certainly i thought it was mm. interesting that they're all wearing um mbc kit which yeah, is yeah i was about to see in a lot of training films high state of readiness so they were you know they were ready for ever we went on exercise in that period you know we were in mbc kit all the time more often than not because those were what we expected to have to wear because we thought that the soviets would use some nasty stuff against us so. i mean they, they, they don't look very comfortable <laughs> uh absolute nightmare and those rubber over boots um which you sort of tie up with laces are a disaster. And, you know, you could, if you were walking on anything, the least bit slippery, you just went mm. um, on your backside, basically. Um, so, yeah, not a great deal of fun. No. <laughs> Hello, Robbie here. Did you know you can support the podcast on Patreon? Join the supporting cast today and gain access to exclusive perks, such as discount codes, our monthly Patreon film votes, 
and the chance to get exclusive merchandise before anyone else. Search Fighting On Film on Patreon or find the link on our website. Thank you. Now back to the show. By 1914, the soldier was equipped with a Lee-Enfield bolt-action rifle. His rate of fire was now so great that the Kaiser's armies often thought that they faced machine guns. The same discipline that held in the square now held in the trenches, though the cost was appalling. Well, we noticed some movement over there. I sent Edwards directly. Used to be Bookie's runner. See around corners. I don't suppose you've seen any of our lot. We got split up. Shell fires. The radio's US. Some of the lads copped it. We're Dorset, see? Jerry's all right. Made a real mess of their tank. Killed three, the rest are in the bag. One up for the Dorsets, right? So there we are, from the from the First World War to, to the Second World War there. The only bit of live action in that First World War sequence was me demonstrating how the SMLE can be cocked at a, a rapid rate. And that was from my collection. I just bought that in and did a close-up on it. Mm. Um, but... Um, the World War II, the Normandy World War II sequence, uh, one of my favourites, I suppose, um, involved an awful lot of calling in favours. So all the vehicles in that sequence belonged to friends or to me. Um, the ruined car came from a scrapyard on the edge of Salisbury Plain, 1930s car. Um, the actual uh, location was a place called Greenland's Camp, which is not far from um, the Busted Inn on Salisbury Plain near Lark Hill. And uh, we chiselled the wall uh, so we could drive the uh, the Hetzer through it. Um, but yeah, I think it was. It, 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 I think it was a really nice sequence. The black and white um, fading into colour, yeah, uh, you know, really joins it together. And um, you know, the guys were great. You know, they they were you know soldiers again. They just did what they were told. So you know, they were more than happy firing the Bren and. Um, the pit was an interesting one um, because they were playing with it uh, before we actually filmed it, and um, they got it into their heads they could fire it standing up, um, <laughs> which was quite amusing. And I did brief them very clearly that that wasn't to happen. But of course, you know, soldiers being soldiers thought they'd have a go, and the young lad who fired it, he went flying back. They all thought it was extremely funny. Um, I mean, he didn't hurt himself, but you know, he he felt a bit foolish, I think. So that was a live pit, was it? It was a live pit, yeah. Oh, and that came from Baptist um, in London, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's not too many of those around anymore, sadly. No. But uh, I did I did wonder, because it's, you know, it's a very good representation of, you know, how it would have been used. You know, it's being called up. One was issued yep. per, uh, per section, I believe it was. Yep. Yeah. Three pair company, yep. one per section. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a nice little scene. Resisted the edge to shout, bring up the pit. Uh, yeah. Bridge over the bridge. Yeah, just, just shouting pit. Um, I think it was nice because they, you know, they called for the gun group, which was exactly yes, right. Yes, I was going to mention two-man, that. Yeah, two-man two gun group rather than, uh, you know, split down into fire teams as we are today. Um, yeah. 
Nice to see an L4, Bryn. Yeah. And that that was all being, you know, I have to say the tactics, the World War II tactics were still being taught when I did Junior Brecon uh, in 1982, the year of the Falklands, uh, Junior Brecon for Territorial Soldiers, which was a two-week course. And we were still having a 10-man rifle section with the gun group and the eight riflemen. That was still being taught in 1982 and it was actually because of the Falklands and the experience of the Falklands that they started to rethink that and the far team concept developed so you know that wasn't alien to those guys particularly um mm. in a sense so it's really interesting that you know World War II tactics were still being yeah. practiced whereas nowadays they wouldn't know what you're talking about <laughs> no idea at all it's still fire and maneuver but I suppose it's been broken down a little bit further than Gun yes, group, indeed. Indeed, exactly. Yes, it's two fire teams, you know, half a section each, um, one commanded by the uh, section IC, the, um, the other one commanded by the section two IC. So that gives you that that constant one foot on the ground, you know, moving forward in tactical bands. But essentially, you know, the gun group, as you as you know, was there to cover uh, the advance of the the rifle mm. the rifle mm. section. Um, but yeah, I think it was just. It was just a great bit of fun. Uh, yeah. You know, it was a very tight little scene. Uh, it worked really well. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, I was fortunate that, you know, <clears throat> I own my own Hetzer. So, you know, that gave them, uh, <laughs> saved them a lot of a lot of money. They wouldn't have had a bit of World War II German armour in that if it hadn't been for the fact that I was prepared to do it, you know, for mm. the sake of having a low loader. And the other guys, you know, there's a, there's a dingo in there yeah, I was going to ask what that was. I couldn't quite make out what. Yeah, it so was. it didn't go in the background and a jeep in the foreground, and they um, they all did that for the love of it. And those those the reason we went for the forty third Wessex Div one because it was you know it's a West Country regiment. Um, oh, sorry, uh, uh, a division formed of West Country regiments, so it had, sort of has a resonance, and also that the vehicles. <clears throat> Uh, were predominantly marked up to that because they belonged to friends of mine and we all marked them up the same. So we wanted to tell that story. And I think I changed this script to say, you know, one up for the Dorsets, you know. Yeah. And actually, I am I am in that scene as one of the German tank crew. Uh, oh, great. See me. So I'm on the ground, spread eagle. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Love yeah. It's great. I think um, my... I think I, when I rewatched it earlier, I think one of the one of the Tommies looks like he's never worn hobnails before because he looks like yeah. he's going to go flying when he starts yeah. running in. And I'm thinking, yeah. oh gosh, those those stick bayonets they they look quite dangerous now when they're yes, around with them. Oh my! Yeah. Um, but that whole section is just brilliant, isn't it, Matt? You know that it's really nice to see a pier that you've not seen on film before. Know, was the was the decision to include the pier, or was it just you know was it in the script already, or because no, I expected to have I, an armored vehicle? No, I think I think I can't remember exactly how what we were going to do, but I think because they wanted to knock the tank out, the only way to knock it out was to have a pier. Um, so I won't claim complete credit for it, but it's a long time ago. But I, I think probably that was the how it evolved. Once once I said I can supply you know a German tank destroyer. Yeah. And the only effective way of knocking it out without using some, you know, artillery uh, proper against it, which we weren't going to get hold of in a hurry, um, was, to, was to use the pier. So it's great. Yeah, it's a great scene. I'd say it's probably one of the best depictions of a pier in action. 300 years after Blenheim, we have a professional army of volunteers. The battles are more complicated and the equipment more sophisticated, but the values are the same. 
The soldiers, comrades, and his regiment are as important as ever. Jigs just copped a message on the net. Enemy have turned up near our last position. Three platoon will have them, then. And the Staffords have got in on the act. Prepare to move. Move! now is that to our immediate front the enemy attack has been contained but the enemy in battalion strength is breaking through on our right b company are now coming under heavy attack we are to remain firm in our position the brigade reserve has been ordered to take up counter penetration positions in b company's area hell arms squadron has been put on immediate notice to support us So there you have it, the British Army on the Rhine, proving yep. why, <laughs> proving what they could do there. <laughs> what a sequence! It's amazing. Yeah. It's a great sequence, and those um, the four lynxes with the tow missiles on. Um, obviously, again, they were deployed to the plane. The the actual firing sequence clearly wasn't where we were. Um, all the stuff going off on the ground was, you know, um, explosive packs electronically detonated, you know, as you'd expect. But I think it was really quite well linked together. I had a good feel. Um, and I know the the Army Air Corps pilots, you know, uh, a breed apart. They, um, they, they, you know, they've got all the Gucci kit, the flying boots and the, the nice gloves and all the rest of it. And you saw a very distinctive sort of post-Falklands tash on one of those pilots. Oh, yes. um, so he, he was... Um, they rather enjoyed the fact. I think they were, you know, being in a film. Let's put it like that. They were. Yeah, they certainly the role. Uh, enjoyed that and chatting mm. up all the girls on the production team here. Yeah. Flyboys, eh? <laughs> yeah. Was that yeah. shot, David, where they're sort of like flying over the top of the tanks? Was that done by? Was that done by air? Was that an aerial shot, or was that? Yes, it was an aerial shot. Road? Yeah, they they had a helicopter in. Uh, to film that, of course, pre-drone, you know, yeah, um, that was the only way of doing it. So mm. yeah, they did. They hired they hired a chopper. Um, and actually, I'm just rethinking that whether they didn't actually. 
I just can't remember where they hired one in or used one. Of, I think they used one of the army choppers, actually. I think they may have gone up in a gazelle or something. Yeah, um, that would make, that might make sense, yeah. It would Because it would have been much cheaper. I think that's what they did. Yeah, I think that's what they did. To be honest, I wasn't, you know, I was... I was running around trying to get the next sequence ready, so I didn't watch every single shot. Um, mm, so, yeah. as I said, the the, the 1985, you know, current serving soldier bits were were predominantly just run by. The, we had a liaison officer from the MOD, and you know, he he dealt with the production crew and you know got everyone together and told them what to do. So, mm. um, you know, I was having sort of not necessarily downtime, but I was either catching chickens or trying to catch chickens or. <laughs> <laughs> trying to arrange for a low loader to offload a tank somewhere you know that's that's sort of yeah. what i was doing if i wasn't actually on on uh, on set here i like the um the part where the the sergeant in the um the the fire position with the the lads with the slrs where he goes oh don't worry lads it's just noise it can't hurt you yeah um yeah because for me that that echoes the nco in the waterloo scenes where he's telling his lads to to hold steady and hold fast um it's that whole sort of look, you know, your NCO's here, he'll help you out, he'll be with you, don't yeah. worry. Um, it's a really nice little inclusion. There's a lot of callbacks throughout the whole thing to previous sections. And it's only when I watched it a few times I actually realised they were there. It's a very multifaceted movie. Um, but there's a lot of love in the, in the, a lot of love in the production. You know, it really seeps yeah. through there. No, absolutely, and that was Bruce Payne playing the modern uh, NCO, uh, you know, in that in that nineteen eighty five sequence, and he didn't appear in the Waterloo sequence, but he was in, in the Normandy one. So Anne Blenheim. So again, that was the link of having the same face uh, yeah. reappearing in different uniforms, in, in different time frames, but essentially being that that person, you know, that the the soldiers turned to in their hour of need, somebody who would reassure them and, you know, be a father, a brother, and, you know, um, a cross dad sometimes, yeah. <laughs> I like, you know, we've spoken about the, the the fairly magnificent scenes with the lynxes, but we have those nice little inclusions of, like, the, um, the GPMG and the uh, sustained fire all, yeah, running through a belt, and, and you know, and I think there's a line in the in the dugout where he's, you know, he, he, as he's ordering to open fire, he's, he's like watching shoot, which yeah, is something I normally like it. sort of associate with um, with uh, fire range drills, that kind of thing. I didn't. Yeah, I no, it's it's very much one of the fire fire control orders that are given to you know the rifleman when you're you yeah. know in that situation. Um, you know, watch and shoot is is normally given. You know, either during a an attack or defence, or on an ambush, for instance. Once you've sprung the ambush, and um, it's all silent before the ambush is sprung, and then yeah. they'll be watch shoot afterwards to try and pin down any any survivors. Mm. Um, but nice touches, as you say, absolutely. Yeah. I think I wish they got a Jimpy firing a live belt rather than a blank belt. That was the only thing. That, <laughs> yeah, that, and it was it was out in the open as well, which yeah, yeah. If you think about it, probably wouldn't have been out in the no. open. Well, they no. wanted to they wanted to massacre those those Russian troops coming through that clearing, didn't they? That's well, they were <laughs> yeah. kind of fumbling through that clearing, weren't they? They weren't exactly in good order. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, they were. I think again, the Gloucesters were playing the enemy as well. Must be conscripts. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's and they were it. told yeah. to ham it, ham it up uh, hmm. as much as they could. Well, they've done another set, another set of uniforms to hire. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've done their job because they got the they got the motor battalion to dismount, which is uh, yeah. really good drills. So I think we'll watch the the last little bit. Okay. And the soldier, he's still loyal, disciplined, courageous, 
and bloody-minded. He's still taken for granted, often misunderstood, and sometimes unpopular. But he's always there when you need him. And if necessary, he'll die for you. I have made for you a song. It may be right or wrong, but only you can tell me if it's true. I have tried for to explain both your pleasure and your pain. And Thomas, here's my best respects to you. For there'll surely come a day when they'll give you all your pay and treat you as a Christian ought to do. So until that day comes round, heaven keep you safe and sound. And Thomas, here's my best respects to you. The end scene there capped with a, a reading, a rendition of Tommy Atkins by Rudyard Kipling really sets a nice end, sombre tone to the film there. Jordan. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that poem resonates down the years, doesn't it? And, you know, it, it sort of rings true today, you know, when, yeah. you know, the majority of the public are so disconnected from the armed forces because it's such a small armed forces compared to, you know, it's Second World War strength or even its 1950s or 60s strength that you know, they don't really understand the military and the only time they see them in public is, you know, helping with floods or, you know, disaster relief. And now, obviously, because of COVID, you know, Nightingale hospitals and, you know, yeah. testing and all that sort of thing. And then they disappear again. And, you know, I think if you spoke to the people in Liverpool who had come face to face with those soldiers who were helping with the testing, they'd all say, oh, we didn't know, you know, the army were like that. You know, they're quite nice people, you know, and we had a good yeah. chat with them. And, you know, it, it brings the humanity. Whereas if you're, you know, you set up a barrier by being in uniform and because of the security situation we've been in ever since Northern Ireland, you know, everything's behind the barbed wire. Yeah. Uh, in the old days, you used to be able to drive through army camps, you know, they're now, you know, highly protected and, and highly secretive um, because of security. Um, so I, I think, you know, that that poem says it all, really. Um, yeah. it, it's the lack of understanding and uh, connection with, with this country's armed forces, mm. which is very sad. And it's not not of the armed forces making. It's it's purely because society has moved on and the armed forces have shrunk. And, you know, how many people have relatives serving these days? It's a minority uh, or have, you know, fathers or cousins or brothers or sisters. You know, it's whereas in I suppose when I was brought up, you know, in the 1960s, you know, national service has only just ended. Everybody knew somebody who'd been in the army, the Navy or the RAF. Yeah. It was mm -hmm. just the norm. Yeah. yeah. I just think that, you know, when the, the line, you know, it says, oh, we'll die for you. It's very... Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's it, you know they are preparing prepared to lay their lives down, and that's something that is sort of also not forgotten, obviously today. But it's it's a very powerful wording now. Like I I really yeah. I commend the scriptwriter for for including those lines because it it really it caps off the movie in a, in a such a a sort of wow you know not choke not to choke you up, but it's you feel quite proud of the the forces mm. at the end there, you know in a way that possibly I don't think other movies have sort of captured in the right tone because you've seen the British army go from Blenheim to current day, you understand 
a little bit better of, of where we came from and where we are. I think that's how it, for me, that at least that's how I, what I get from the end there. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think, um, you know, let's, in, in historical context, you know, 1985, three years after the Falklands, that was the first sort of war fought in the public gaze, you know, with, with yeah. daily updates and broadcasts on, on the news. You know, that was highly, highly unusual. Whereas, you know, previous campaigns, you know, Korea, Malaya, uh, you know, Aden, Borneo, none of that had been live reporting. And then from that point onwards, we move into a whole series of conflicts you know, in the former Yugoslavia, uh, the two wars in Iraq, um, Afghanistan, which is, you know, covered um, to within an inch of its life. And so, you know, this this film was made at a time when that was just beginning to happen. Yeah. Um, but the army, as, as an army, had been trained to fight a conventional war against the Soviet Union. Um, but we suddenly had to switch tack to being, you know, peacekeepers in the former Yugoslavia, and then, you know, on the offensive in Iraq, you know, fighting a, a proper war, um, uh, and but in a, against a very different enemy, not the enemy we we been trained to fight against. So, it, it, what I think is particularly valuable about this film is it's a snapshot in time of, of where the British Army were at that time, and then, you know, just thinking a few years after that film was made, you know. Uh, Glasnost, Perestroika, you know, uh, Yeltsin, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and all that was coming, you know, down the line. And none of that was a reality at the time. So, it, yeah. it, you know, contextually, it's important to remember where that, you know, where we are, where we stand in 1985. Mm. I, I really, I really enjoyed that sort of transition between the uh, 1985 wounded soldier through to the... Um, uh, 1704 wounded soldier mm. where it's the same sort of like shots the same sort of um resonance that's mirrored down the ages of saying you know these these are men that put it all on the line mm. um yeah and they're willing to do that because it's their profession and you know it's that you know it's that unbroken link of you know uh, professionalism and the mindset of being a soldier that remains you know that that link back through three centuries plus of you know of soldiering yeah absolutely yeah that's the unbroken line isn't it that's, that's the film that's what it that's exactly what it's all about and i think yeah. you know as i think i said earlier if you if you decided to make that film today um you would get exactly the same resonance you know but you just update it to where we are today and mm. you know particularly two or three years ago with afghanistan um going on you know that would have been particularly poignant and you know soldiers at the end of the day have a job to do and they do that job on behalf of you know their political masters and um you know afghanistan is a difficult contentious uh, subject for lots of people to talk about and i it's not the time to go into it here but you know regardless of whether it was right or wrong soldiers have no choice in the matter They've got to do their duty, and you know, ultimately, a lot of them lost their lives. Which is, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, is mm. is uh, is bottom line. And there we go. Another big thank you to David for appearing in that episode with us. And he might be back on the show soon because he didn't just do the Unbroken Line, but he also worked on a couple more movies. So I think we'll get him back on in the future. And thanks for listening, everybody. You can follow us on the socials. 
Visit fightingonfilm.com to find the entire back catalogue of the show and we'll catch you next week. Bye everyone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.